This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the, this week's last episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review, where we are discussing abdominal wall defects. It is question day. Daphna, we're almost done. We're almost done. We're almost done. Yeah. I hope people learned a lot. I surely learned a lot. And Me too. Um, hopefully, hopefully you all did as well. All right. All right. Start us off. Okay. So the first question today comes from the maternal fetal medicine uh, chapter, question 90. So I'm going to say this is a tricky question. So just take your time, okay? A 32-year-old woman is 31 weeks gestation. Medications include prenatal vitamins and omega-3 supplements, both of which uh, were started one year prior to conception. Pre-pregnancy BMI was 36 uh, kilograms per meter square, and uh, she's gained 35 kilograms during this pregnancy. Her glucose tolerance test was within normal limits. The fetal survey at 18 weeks gestation was incomplete due to poor image quality. In infants born to obese women, the congenital malformation that has a lower rate of occurrence, a lower rate of occurrence. So basically, they're asking, what is associated with obesity? <laughs> is it A, anorectal anomaly, B, gastroschisis, C, hydrocephaly, D, neural tube defect, or E, structural heart disease? That's a, yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> mm. Hmm. I mean, smart, uh, smart test taking strategy says if you pick this question. <laughs> during gastroschisis week week um, maybe gastroschisis but, is an answer choice so it's it's fair it's game <laughs> but i remember i do remember that um as you, you mentioned i think it was on monday that uh babies who have gastroschisis are born to usually are born uh usually to younger uh mothers mm. and i tend to think uh younger uh yeah, careful tread lightly here no, I'm just thinking <laughs> s- smaller age, smaller weight. Like, I'm just thinking small, right? Mm. I'm just thinking small. And um, so, yeah, I mean, in this case, I don't know. Uh, still anomalies. <laughs> yeah. The other the other I can make a case for, right? I mean, the structural heart disease, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's 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 one. Neural tube defect, true as well. Hydrocephaly is the one that's sort of. Anorectal mm. anomaly, I know as well that it's associated with obesity. Mm-hmm. But hydrocephaly, huh, I'd have to look that up again. Anyway, I'm going to go with gastroschisis because that's what we're talking about this week. Okay. Well, that was that was good. That was good. The answer is gastroschisis. So um, has a lower rate of gastroschisis. So although many fetuses of obese women are at increased risk of congenital malformations, there's actually a significant decrease in the rate of gastroschisis in infants born to obese women compared to those born to non-obese women. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this question 
is complicated for a few uh, reasons because the obese pregnant woman has an increased rate of things like gestational diabetes and gestational diabetes is associated uh, or pregestational diabetes and gestational diabetes is associated with gastroschisis, um, but not you know, you can have gestational diabetes and not be obese. Um, and so obese women are less likely to have babies with gastroschisis. And so I guess that's why in the question stem, they do mention. That the glute that her- GTT was normal. Uh-huh. There's yeah. a reason for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, certainly with obesity, we'll finish out that question. There are several risks to the fetus and the, the pregnant women and pregnancies complicated by severe maternal obesity. Um, they have higher rates of uh hypertension and postpartum hemorrhage. There are also higher rates of induction of labor, cesarean delivery, and shoulder dystocia. Female, female, fetal demise is also increased in these pregnancies as well, and infants are more likely to be large for gestational age. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, Yeah. This is a, this is actually a very tough question if you're Mm -hmm. not doing it in sections, because sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, you do board review prep and you have, you're doing like yeah, you're doing what we're doing. Yeah, like rapid fire. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing abdominal wall defects. You're like, all right, that's on the abdominal. Anyway, all right. Next question. Uh, that's gastroenterology question eleven. An emphalocele is a congenital abdominal wall defect resulting from incomplete body wall folding during embryogenesis. Which of the following statements is false? Approximately ten percent of infants with emphalocele's will have. Um, also gigantism, microglossia, and hypoglycemia secondary to pancreatic hyperplasia. Uh, choice B, associated genes include pituitary home box 2, insulin-like growth factor 2, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and a methyl... Oh, man, I was doing so well. <laughs> um, <laughs> methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism there. Choice C, Congenital anomalies are noted in 50 to 70% of patients with an emphalocele. Choice D, the incidence of emphalocele is 1 to 3 per 10,000 live birth. And choice E, the presence of an emphalocele is associated with young maternal age. Thank God for that last one. Okay, fine. That's right. (laughs) You only needed to remember at least one fact. Um, But I guess let's walk through. We're looking for the false statement. So. Uh, in answer choice A, obviously there is an association with overgrowth syndromes and things like that with Wiedemann. Is it 10%? I don't know. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't determine that in my, in my study. There are lots of genes here. There are lots of genes that would be associated with overgrowth syndromes. So I, I see that. And that just to help you, that last one is, is that MTHFR <laughs> gene. So that's easier to say. Um, congenital anomalies it's are not noted. making it. I mean, yes, it's easier to say. It doesn't solve anything. <laughs> it doesn't solve anything. Congenital anomalies in 50 to 70% of patients. So that's definitively true. The incidence of emphalocele is about one to three per 10,000 live births. That's true. And then the presence of emphalocele is associated with young maternal age. So I told you it's on the extremes of maternal age, but in general, we associate it with like older moms. So I would say that E is the false choice. Yeah. So you're correct. Uh, Young maternal age. You mentioned that uh, on Monday. 
uh, older maternal age is associated with emphalocele, younger maternal age is associated with gastroschisis. Emphalocele is a midline defect characterized by eviscerated abdominal content typically covered by a protective sac. We've mentioned that it is associated with advanced maternal age and approximately 30% of affected infants have an abnormal karyotype, including trisomy 13, 18, and 21. Approximately 50 to 70% of affected patients have associated congenital anomalies, including 10% of cases with Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, characterized mm -hmm. by emphalocele, gigantism, macroglossia, and hypoglycemia, secondary to pancreatic hyperplasia. I think it's always these secondary sort of clarifications that can ruin your ability to answer a question because it's like, yeah. is the hypoglycemia second? I know. <laughs> uh, several genes, uh, including the pituitary home box 2, the insulin-like growth factor 2, the cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and the MTF reductase gene polymorphism. Is that better? MTHFR. MTHFR, goddammit. <laughs> the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism have been associated with an emphalocele. However, their roles in the pathogenesis remains unclear. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I wanted to mention in my review that actually paternal age is also correlated with uh, gas, advanced paternal age with gastroschisis and emphalocele, but actually it did it was modified based on the age of the mother, which actually is like kind what of do you mean interesting. By that? So here, let me see if I can let me find it again. Okay. So I just I'm just curious as to what you mean by it, that it was uh, modified. That's the, the one. So paternal age, advanced paternal age, was a risk factor, but it depended on the age of the mother. So oh. Yeah. So the paternal age became a risk factor only depending on what the mother, the age of the mother was. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Let me see if I can find it. It was so interesting. That is interesting. Yes. I'm going to try to uh, keep keep the the show going by. Uh, I know. Not, we'll. Not... I'll find the. I'll find the reference. <laughs> we'll. We'll add the reference. Okay. Oh, uh, it's yeah. my turn. It's, I yeah, have to. Yeah. Read. <laughs> Okay, we're uh, doing GI question 12. We're flying by the seat of we're, our pants here. We're, it's, just, it's, we're yeah, getting Friday. there. We're yeah. getting. A 36-week gestational age male infant is born with an abdominal wall defect one centimeter to the right of the umbilicus. Eviscerated abdominal contents include large and small bowel. They're not covered in a protective sac, and the infant is diagnosed with gastroschisis. Oh, you thought you were going to get the I thought they were just going to be like, what is it? What is it? Which of the following statements is true? Oh, A, gastroschisis is associated with advanced maternal age. B, no. gene polymorphisms of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, intracellular adhesion molecule 1, and atrial natriuretic peptide have been associated with a tenfold increased risk of developing an abalocele. That's a tough one. God, God, my God. And it's when you see that choice that you're like, please, let, let choice D or E bail me out. With, bail with me some... out. There must be another clue. There must be an easier one that I definitely know, please. Uh, C, intrauterine growth restriction is more likely to occur in infants born with an emphalocele than in infants born with gastroschisis. D, prolonged ileus, catheter-related infection, and sepsis are the most common complications of gastroschisis and affect 15 to 30% of patients. There it is. 
the majority of infants, you got to read the last answer. That's true. That is true. You're right about that. E, the majority of infants born with gastroschisis will have an associated intestinal atresia or stenosis. You're looking for the true statement. Um, man. So, <clears throat> uh, choice A. Gastroschisis assumed with advanced maternal age. We talked about that. No. Um, the gene polymorphism. Well, I prepped for this episode, so I know that this is not associated with infallible, but that's something that, in all honesty, like if it was the boards, like I don't know if I would have known that top of my head. Mm -hmm. um, the IUGR, you mentioned that this was actually more common with gastroschisis instead of mm -hmm. infallible. So I know that. And then D, uh, D is correct. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know what? That's that's why it's, it's okay. Because you've mentioned that they have uh, more clabsy. Um, and they have more complications uh, in, in gastroschisis. But it's interesting, the majority of infants born with gastroschisis will have an associated mm. intestinal or atresia or stenosis. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought, hmm, we mm. mentioned, we, we sp I feel like we spoke about that. We did. We did speak about that. Man, let me see. I have my notes. But I, I, I have a feeling that the majority is the issue. It's not, maybe they do have it, but it's not the majority. God, man, they're so tricky. That's right. No, that's that's exactly right. How many babies that you had with gastroschisis had an atresia? Most of yeah. them, or not most of them? That's uh, that's, a, that's a dangerous game to play to, to try to compare yeah, your uh, your body of work. <laughs> something. It's something. So we're looking for the true statement. The true statement is D. Prolonged ileus catheter-related infection and sepsis are the most common complications of gastroschisis and affect fifteen to thirty percent of patients. So the. Uh, the review, gastroschisis is an abdominal wall defect. Its incidence is um, uh, one, uh, one to three per really four to 5,000 live births, um, slightly higher than the incidence of emphalocils. The abdominal wall defect in patients with gastroschisis almost always occurs one to two centimeters to the right of the umbilicus. Mm -hmm. they're, not they're not covered with a protective sac. And again, the um, the contents are then in direct contact with amniotic fluid resulting in edematous uh, foreshortened fibrin covered bowel gastroschisis has been associated with young maternal age maternal smoking alcohol use illicit substance abuse and over-the-counter vasoactive medications while gastroschisis is typically an isolated malformation approximately 10 uh, to 20 percent will have a concurrent intestinal atresia or stenosis. So not the majority of patients. It's still the minority of patients, but it's something that we worry about. Mm -hmm. Intrauterine growth restriction affects 20 to 60% of infants born with gastroschisis, significantly higher um, uh, percentage than those born with emphalocele. Gene polymorphisms of these endothelial nitric oxide synthase, intracellular adhesion molecule one, and atrial natriuretic peptide have been associated with a two-fold increased risk of developing gastroschisis, which increases to a five-fold risk when combined with maternal smoking. Mm -hmm. So the way I think about those is I feel like these are kind of like vasoactive peptides. So um, that makes me, while we're not exactly sure... <laughs> What happens in gastroschisis? We think it has something to do with the vasculature. Uh, versus you told us in the last question, the gene uh, associations with emphalocy. Um, And then what did I want to tell you? One more thing. Oh, like we said, the correct answer. Prolonged ileus, catheter-related infection, and sepsis are the most common complications of gastroschisis, and they affect about a quarter of patients. Mm-hmm.
Okay. Okay. Last question of the week. You ready? Mm -hmm. Question 16. Gastroenterology question 16. You're called to see a male infant with a prenatal diagnosis of gastroschisis who's become tachypnic in the last 30 minutes. Um, the baby was born five hours ago after an elective C-section in 39 weeks. Birth weight is 3.5 kilos. Abgar scores 9-9 at 1 and 5 minutes, respectively. The mother's pregnancy, general health, delivery course are unremarkable. Besides the gastroschisis, the neonate had a normal physical exam with an initial respiratory rate of 35 to 45 breaths per minute, no increased work of breathing. The peripheral IV line was inserted late at three hours of life due to some difficulty um, in placement, and IV fluids were ordered at 60 ml per kilo per day and are awaited, so they haven't arrived. The exposed bowel was examined and found intact, viable, and left wrapped in a saline-soaked gauze. At five hours of life, the baby is sleeping, does not awaken during your exam. His heart rate is 180 beats per minute. Mean blood pressure is 40 millimeters of mercury. And the respiratory rate is 60 to 70 breaths per minute. He's not uh, in respiratory distress, has an oxygenation, an oxygen saturation, I'm sorry, of 100% on Romare. His tone is decreased. His glucose is 68. He has an orogastric tube that has drained 30 ml of bile-stained fluid. The team has already sent a CBC and blood culture and has ordered a chest X-ray and antibiotics. Dr. Daphna Yasova-Barbeau, mm. what should be the initial management of this infant? Choice A, give a bolus of 10 ml per kilo of normal saline and start maintenance fluid. Choice B, give a glucose bolus of two milligram per kilo stat. Choice C, replace the OG tube. Choice D, take him to the OR immediately to explore new onset gut ischemia. Choice E, transluminate his chest to look for a pneumothorax. Mm -hmm. Well, what I wanna say is you were called because of tachypnea. This kid's tachypnic, we've already, we've missed the boat, right? So um, what they're describing is a very tachycardic baby uh, who's also tachypnic, uh, who's really lethargic. This is a baby I would use the L word for. Um, and uh, we know is at risk um, for fluid losses and has put out a lot of fluid. So that's another thing we didn't talk about is monitoring your need for replacement fluid on top of uh, extraneous uh, maintenance IV fluid. So I I think the most likely thing is that this kid is is getting behind on fluids. So I would give a bolus first. Yes. Yes. Good job. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean the 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 exposed bowel is extremely prone to evaporative losses, and I think that's something that is always. Uh, important to keep track of your uh, insensible water losses. So infants with gastroschisis can have massive evaporative and third space fluid losses via their exposed intestines, despite moist barriers, as they had in this case with the sal soaked uh, saline gauze. Coupled with fluid loss due to gastric decompression, babies with gastroschisis can become dehydrated quickly. Um, and that is yeah, that's the that's in my opinion is the, is the most difficult part of managing them from a mm -hmm. medical standpoint is keeping up with their fluid losses in the absence of retractions. <laughs> and then you or, catch up and they get edematous. Yeah, the, or hypoxia. The, the, the tachypnea of the infant in this vignette is probably secondary to rapid dehydration and acidosis and is likely to respond to a normal saline bolus with immediate initiation of maintenance IV fluids. Uh, newborn with gastroschisis initially may require up to double the usual maintenance fluid volume, approximately one hundred. 
and 20 ml per kilo per day in term infants, which is something you would never do if you didn't have gastroschisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the blood glucose in the baby in this vignette uh, and additional glucose administration are not needed. A blocked orogastric tube can cause distress and tachypnea in an infant due to bowel dilation. But in this case, the OG seems to be functioning because it's yeah, having it's some draining. output. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the recent exam of the infant's bowel was satisfactory, and therefore new onset perforational volvulus is less likely, uh, even if that's also something that is terrifying. Um, and you'd want a fluid resuscitate for. <laughs> absolutely. Even if that was the case, the initial that's management right. should include That's right. Yeah, I think, I think where people get, this is a good point, where people get tripped up on some of these questions is like, I would, I might want to do a few of these things, but what is like the first the thing. step? And it's usually some sort of resuscitative effort. Yeah. And then finally, they're talking about this, this whole getting a chest x-ray, lung hypoplasia and pneumothorax are more prevalent in infants with a giant emphalus seal. And that is, we're, this is, yeah, this concludes <laughs> our week of board review. This was actually very good. It was um, fun. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for putting that together. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And tune in uh, this Sunday for another episode of the Incubator Podcast, where we will have an interview. And I can look up who the uh, guest is. Actually, I do not have it in front of me. But this is why we're so organized. I can pull up the, uh, I can pull it up. There it is. I think I know, but I don't want to say the wrong. Okay. So, uh, ooh, ooh, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Who do you think it was? I think it's our Embleton, Dr. Embleton interview. Yes. It's Did Nick I get it? It's yes. Nick Embleton. Yeah. Yeah. This was a, uh, an episode that we wanted to do and that the, the audience has requested. So mm -hmm. very excited. It was good. Nick is, Nick is, he's some, he's something. So join us Sunday for a phenomenal episode. Um, and yeah, thank you, Daphne. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.